Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. On this coming Monday, February 28th, we will be starting a new season of Jury Duty with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. Today brings us to the end of our series of interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we concluded our conversation with Carmen as we heard her reflections on the jury deliberations, the verdict, and the death of Robert Durst. In this episode, we cover the same subjects with John Okanishi, and that conversation is coming up right after the break. 
juries myself, is it's always a nice idea just to take a pulse as to how far of a gap that we might have in terms of our decisions. You know, not a final vote, but just, just to see how much of a gap existed. So after we elected the, uh, the jury foreperson, we took an anonymous vote amongst the, the 12 jurors, and they were to vote either uh, guilty, not guilty, or undecided. And on that first anonymous vote, we had 10 votes of guilty and two others who said they need to discuss this before they can make a decision. I, I think one of them actually said they voted guilty, but they, you know, they're 90% sure, but they want to discuss the other 10%. So based upon that, you know, we knew that we were going into this pretty much all on the same page. You have to remember, though, been hearing, you know, 18 weeks worth of evidence. We weren't allowed to discuss amongst ourselves, you know, at all. So everyone is, you know, going into this full of 18 weeks worth of opinions that they could finally, you know, get off their chest. So, you know, after we took that initial vote, we tried to come up with a framework in that we would, uh, you know, break up uh, all the different charges and then address those, you know, uh, you know, one by one. You know, we broke it up into, um, you know, Kathy Durst, into Morris Black, uh, obviously Susan Berman. And then, you know, some of the, uh, you know, other uh, charges, you know, the witness killing, uh, the use of the firearm. So we, we broke it up uh, into those and then we methodically, you know, address each, you know, one by one. You know, initially we went around the room and each person kind of, you know, had a, a few minutes just, you know, un- un- uninterrupted to discuss what their, you know, their feelings are. And then obviously, you know, most of it was that the prosecution made a very solid case proving guilt in that, you know, the defense, they really didn't have a a leg to stand on. And, you know, many ways, the biggest mistake was letting Robert Durst take the stand. And so uh, we went out in the room and, you know, every person, you know, sort of discussed what their opinions are, you know, was all that, you know, they felt that Robert Durst uh, was guilty. I can talk about this since it was, you know, my, my opinion, but I think when it came around to me, I said, we could spend weeks, we could probably spend months in this room discussing every piece of, uh, you know, evidence that was, you know, brought forth to us. But if we just focus on three things, I think, you know, it sort of makes a lot of the other, what I'll call secondary evidence, you know, uh, a little moot. It all goes back to something that, uh, that was made upon from the prosecution standpoint from closing. They said of all the evidence, if it's just one piece of evidence that you believe and to you convinces you proves to you beyond any reasonable doubt that Robert Durst is guilty in the murder of Susan Berman. That is all you need. Uh, Mr. Balian mentioned that, you know, if you believe Nick Chavin, if you think he is a credible witness and you believe that Robert Durst indeed told him that, you know, it was her or me, I had no choice, that is enough to convict Robert Durst. I remember that. And from my standpoint, when we went into deliberation, my points were Robert Durst confessed that he murdered Susan Berman. 
when he said, kill them all, of course, recorded off camera on the jinx. Number two, where it was stipulated, where he admitted that only the killer could have written the uh, cadaver note. And then he admitted that he was the person who wrote the cadaver note. You know, number three, it was his confession to Nick Chavin. I said, for me, you know, any one of those was enough, but he admitted to all three. So I think that was the point, you know, that I made and that a lot of other jurors also, you know, agreed with. So from that standpoint, then we started to discuss, you know, other uh, pieces of evidence. I, I recall one was the um, Susan Berman's uh, day planner. Someone made the comment, there was uh, another friend of Susan's. He was the uh, uh, writer a- actor who, who had uh, testified, uh, you know, he said, when Bobby comes to town, we're all going to go out. We're going to have a great time. And so one of the jurors made a point, well, gosh, you know, it's interesting that that was, you know, that that wasn't in the day planner either. It all came around to the point where if the, these, you know, the three or even one of these, you know, quote unquote confessions by Robert Durst was enough for you, you know, discussing, you know, other, the things like the day planner isn't, you know, necessary because so much of the other evidence is so, so much more compelling. It kind of got us back around into the main points, the, the key pieces of evidence that we felt beyond a reasonable doubt were, were strong enough that we believed in to convict uh, Robert Durst. So I think uh, the total time we spent you know, deliberating was probably, uh, I think it was eight hours. How much of that time was spent addressing any doubts that jurors seemed to have? There were some doubts on some things. The point that a lot of us made to the other jurors is, hey, you know, if if we're all in agreement on these three things, then that is enough to declare him guilty. Some of these other things that we're discussing, yes, you know, you could make an argument to cast doubt on it, but I'll call them lesser pieces of evidence. We wouldn't convict them solely on that. So, you know, it's good that everyone wants to, you know, discuss this, but we could go weeks talking about every piece of evidence. But other other jurors, you know, especially those where it was their very sh- first time being on a jury where like, we really need to talk about this. And, you know, we were all, we wanted to make sure that everyone felt 110% with our decision. So, you know, we, we let people um, you know, express their their opinions. But as, you know, we were getting further into further deliberations, it, it got it got to a point where, you know, some of these things that, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, that we're, there might be doubt on, maybe there is. But again, if we're all in agreement with these key, with these key pieces of, of, of evidence, the confessions, then that's enough. And I think at that point, people started to realize, yes, I mean, we're, we're, we're all in agreement. And, you know, after eight hours, we had done our due diligence. And for some, we had done our moral obligation to come to the right decision as instructed by the judge. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We now return to my conversation with John Okanishi. If Kathy Durst had disappeared in California, if Morris Black had been killed in California, do you think that this jury would have convicted Robert Durst of murdering Kathy Durst and premeditatedly murdering Morris Black? First, with regards to um, Kathy Durst, from our discussions, we were all in agreement that Robert Durst certainly had something to do with the disappearance you know, of his wife. And the fact that Robert Durst probably, you know, had something to do with the disappearance of his wife, I think factored most in that, um, you know, Susan Berman was, was a witness who could testify that she was an alibi for her disappearance. And so the, the charge of witness killing, something that we had to decide on, that was probably the most significant. If you were to ask us Based upon the evidence, would we charge Robert Durst with the murder of Kathy Durst? That question never came up. The charge was not for Kathy Durst's you know, death. So if you were to ask me, do I think, from based upon the evidence that I heard, can Robert Durst be you know, convicted for the first-degree murder of his wife? That, for myself personally... I would say I don't know, only because, you know, the the facts of, you know, her death, was it premeditated? Was it an act of passion? Was it an accident? I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, did he dispose of the body? I've heard enough that, yeah, he did that. But, you know, the exact uh, circumstances of her death, first degree, second degree accident, I personally did not have enough of a degree of certainty to convict him for first degree murder for of his wife. What about manslaughter? Potentially, but you know, well, manslaughter, I guess manslaughter could be an accident. So that I could see, but I guess that because that wasn't an actual charge that we were deciding upon, you know, we, we didn't really, we didn't really spend a lot of time on that. I mean, everyone said, Hey, do you think, do you think, you know, uh, Robert Durst killed his wife, Kathy? And, you know, a lot of people were like, yeah, of course. And, you know, whether it was manslaughter or, you know, intentional first degree, you know, murder that we never really talked about. We only, I think the only fact that we, we, we thought, yeah, you know, he, he had something to do with the disappearance of his wife. Yes. Susan Berman, was an alibi for that disappearance, however it happened. And Robert Durst, you know, knew that she could be a potential threat to him. So he killed her and it was a witness killing. We we pretty much focused on it just from that standpoint. As far as Morris Black is concerned, uh, the Texas jury found Morris Black not guilty, which, you know, initially we thought was like shocking for somebody who admitted to dismembering a body. You know, we thought it was shocking. But the interesting thing during, during the trial was, you know, we heard that the Texas jury found Robert Durst not guilty of first degree murder, despite the fact he admitted to dismembering the body. So I thought to myself, that's, that's like the most shocking thing 
I've ever heard. And even Robert Durst, when he was, when, you know, he was uh, testifying, he said he was shocked too. You know, he had to ask, wait, what was that verdict again? During the trial, there was a few seconds or minutes that I could understand how the Texas jury came to their decision. When Robert Durst was being interviewed by the defense, you know, obviously on, on you know, friendly territory, Robert Durst, who, you know, prior to him taking the stand, looked like this, you know, frail old man. Well, you know, he was not in good health. But, you know, as, as I looked at him, you know, sitting from my jurist chair across the room, I'm looking at him and, it, you know, it didn't even seem like, you know, from a mental standpoint, he was 100% all there. He looked he looked very, he looked senile. I said, how is this guy going to stand up to cross-examination by John Lewin? Is he even going to be survived? I mean, we saw how John Lewin cross-examined, you know, some of these witnesses like, you know, Detective Strzok, you know, the, uh, the doctor, the memory expert. I mean, he, for lack of a better word, he, he, he ripped in the shreds. How is Robert Durst going to stand up to that, you know, cross-examination? But I'll tell you, when Robert Durst, took the stand and was being interviewed by Mr. DeGuren. He spoke with a level of credibility, with a level of sincerity in going into detail of things that happened, which would attest to his innocence. And he was doing it so well, I could almost believe Robert Durst. And I go, is this the same level of credibility and sincerity that the Texas jury got? I could almost I could almost understand how they came to their verdict. It wasn't until John Lewin, you know, began the cross-examination where I began, you know, to realize that Robert Durst is making the stuff up as he goes along and he's really really good at it. But back to Morris Black, you know, I talked about how for a few minutes, a few seconds there, I could understand how the Texas jury made the decision. The one thing that happened during this trial that didn't happen during the Texas trial, it made me understand that Robert Durst in Texas lied under oath. And yeah, he probably killed Morris Black as first degree murder. And this had to do with that during the interviews that Robert Durst had with Mr. Lewin in New Orleans, I think it was that where you know, he described shooting Morris Black. And in one instance, he told the story was that Morris Black had the gun at his side. But then upon cross-examination by Mr. Lewin, you know, he said, no, he was pointing the gun at him. So clearly this is something, you know, you don't forget, but he was caught in a lie, in a bold lie that this never came up during the Texas trial. But, you know, when that happened, during the recent trial, you know, I realized, yeah, it's he's caught in another lie, and yes, he killed uh, he killed Morris Black. But if anything, that that did was it convinced us that you can't believe anything that Robert Durst says under oath because he lies. He admitted to lying. I mean, it was all downhill after that. What did you make of the case put forward by the defense? The only two witnesses that spoke on behalf of the defense, well, first was the memory expert. Her resume was very impressive. She came across as a little, well, very arrogant. And then John Lewin began his cross-examination of her. And I think any weight that she might have about, you know, the uh, 
validity of some of the other witnesses, you know, talking about whether or not Susan Berman had actually, you know, told them that, you know, she served an alibi. It cast doubt on her testimony. And then at one point, you know, Robert Durst admitted that, yeah, sure, I'm, yeah, I don't doubt that, you know, Susan told all these people that they're, you know, they're not remembering it wrong. I mean, it totally invalidated the key expert witness for the defense. And then the other witness, which was Robert Durst, you know, Mr. Lewin got him to admit that he would lie under oath if asked, you know, point blank, did he murder anyone? And then he he admitted, you know, that he had already perjured himself, you know, many times. At you know at that point, it was it it was became a hundred and ten percent, you know, no no brainer. Did you and your fellow jurors discuss those things? Did you discuss the fact that the memory witness testimony was sort of invalidated by Durst's own statement? Yes. We we did we did discuss that. Well, even if Durst never you know had admitted that to invalidate you know the uh, key expert witness, John Lewin's cross examination of her really casted a doubt. You know a lot of the things that you know she was claiming about about memory. I think one thing that we, I recall about his cross examination of her was that. At one point, he asked, you know, could he record his conversation with her? She said, no, I would not be comfortable with that. And then he said, well, you know, for someone who, you know, cast doubt on people's memory, why didn't you agree to have it, that conversation recorded rather than, you know, having to, to rely on a memory of it? And then she really started waffling over that. And, you know, that was a key moment that for me cast a lot of doubt onto uh, her expert testimony. And then later, you know, <laughs> Robert Durst completely invalidated that. During the deliberations, did the idea that Susan Berman posed a threat to Robert Durst come up? A lot of us, and I, this isn't, this isn't unanimous, but yeah, quite a, quite a bit of us were very much of the feeling that Susan Berman, even though Robert Durst, you know, murdered her because she posed a threat, a lot of us really felt that she would have she wouldn't have done that that Susan Berman probably still would have would have would have lied rather than to um you know incriminate Robert Durst in the disappearance in the murder of his of his wife Kathy that Robert Durst probably of all these other people Susan Giordano uh, Deborah Cheriton all these other people who were his friends, you know, probably did so with monetary gains in mind. But Susan Berman, again, you know, several of us really felt that she would have still been loyal to him. And he wound up murdering, you know, the best friend, the truest friend that he would ever have in his life. I mean, my, my takeaway, my personal takeaway was it was you know, one of the, the strongest, most emotional, thoughtful testimonies was from Melick Hoffman, Susan Berman's, you know, surrogate daughter. And Susan might have kind of embellished things or, you know, told big stories with a lot of her social circle. But, you know, her relationship with Melick Hoffman, her surrogate daughter, was much closer, much more real and when Mella Kaufman said that, you know, Susan Berman would never have blackmailed, would never blackmail Robert Durst, I, I, I believe that. 
and uh, but again, they got, he was so paranoid. He 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 didn't want to take a chance and murdered and murdered Susan Berman. John, tell me about bringing the deliberations to a close and voting on a verdict. They did get to a point where some of us felt, yeah, maybe you know, we're kind of going around, you know, in 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 circles on this, and that we have our verdict. We we should go ahead. Uh, you know, and 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 decide on it. Uh, in that, yeah, we 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 talked about you know some of the other stuff. I think to the um, the satisfaction of the others. So that was a point that you know we we basically said is everyone now one hundred percent in agreement with a guilty verdict on all of the charges we addressed: the use of a gun, the witness killing. Uh, you know, the primary charge in the murder of Susan Vermin. We took a vote, is everyone in agreement with this? And everyone said yes. And I go, then we have our verdict, you know, let's move forward. And at, at that point, everyone said, okay, I'm satisfied that we we discussed this. We We followed the judge's instructions and we did our obligation as jurors. Would you give me your impressions of Judge Wyndham and how he conducted himself during the trial? Wow, Judge Wyndham was um, one cool cucumber. I, I would say that, um, yeah, if, uh, in addition to the uh, yeah the prosecution, you know, his ability to uh, you know preside o- over the trial was very very uh, impressive. I you know I have, I often thought that uh, <laughs> if they were to make the trial into a movie, the perfect person uh, to play Judge Wyndham would be, would be, uh, would be Tom Hanks, uh, who, you know, would, would, uh, would play the part with uh, both, uh, you know, a sense of humor, which Judge Wyndham, you know, certainly had, he had a a wonderful sense of humor, but he also had uh, a rock solid control over, over the proceedings. I had one more opportunity to follow up with John after the news broke that Robert Durst had died. So here now is the conclusion of my conversation with juror number two, John Okanishi. John Okanishi, thanks again for joining us. Glad to be back. So since we last spoke, Robert Durst passed away. Can you tell me how you found out and what your thoughts were when you heard the news? Well, I found out in that several friends of mine were uh, texting me the news you know, of course, they knew that uh, I was a juror on the trial. And to be honest, I wasn't very surprised by the news, you know, at all. Uh, during the trial, he didn't look very well. And, um, you know, essentially during the trial, I remember when the defense was interviewing him, you know, he went through a list of all of the health problems that he'd been experiencing. And the one phrase he said, I'm done. So, you know, he knew that he didn't have very much longer to live, but, you know, he wanted to live, you know, his last several years as a free person. And so when I had heard he was passed, again, I was not surprised, you know, during the trial, uh, we even wondered if he would survive that. Any thoughts on the fact that his death coming on the heels of his filing an appeal means that the conviction is vacated in the state of California? When I heard that, yeah, I really thought that was um, unfortunate and, you know, as you mentioned, a legal technicality. You know, I would like to think that 
you know, the way history is going to remember this is that he was, you know, convicted by a jury. And so that verdict may not stand based upon a legal, well, I guess it stands, but whether or not he's ultimately, you know, found guilty, I think as people go back and remember this, they'll remember that, you know, justice was served based upon that verdict. So, uh, you know, I thought it was um, unfortunate when I heard that it could be, uh, it could be reversed. But then again, I'm looking at, you know, the major decision that, uh, that we came to as a jury. John, is there anything else that you'd like to share about your experiences that we haven't touched upon in the course of these two conversations? I feel fortunate to be, you know, involved in, uh, it was certainly a very interesting case. You know, it's a, like a film noir movie that was uh, that was real. I feel fortunate to have been involved in a case that most part has come to closure that, you know, justice was realized. I also feel fortunate to have spent, you know, 18 weeks with, uh, with people who felt a societal obligation to do the right thing, to do the responsibility you know, regardless of other uh, family and, you know, professional obligations. So, you know, in that latter part, you know, despite a case where three people lost their lives, the heartening aspect of it was coming to a decision with other people who did the right thing, despite the, uh, the lengthy sacrifice. John Okanishi, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your service on that trial. Thank you. That concludes this bonus series of Jury Duty. Join us on Monday for the premiere of our new Jury Duty season, examining the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. And stay tuned to our feed as we will have more exclusive interviews from key participants in the trial of Robert Durst. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.